Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kristen Zaleski, who is the clinical director of the Mental Health Collective. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here. So we're excited to talk about understanding trauma, and I'm going to give the listeners and viewers a little bit of information about your background. So Dr. Uh, Kristen Zaleski is a PhD and licensed social worker. In addition to being the clinical director of the Mental Health Collective, she is the founding director of the University of Southern California's SDP Keck Human Rights Clinic. Quite a mouthful. Um, yes. She's a psychologist. <laughs> She's a psychotherapist in private practice in Hermosa Beach, California. You know, her research and clinical focus has spanned two decades with trauma survivors and focused on survivors of human rights abuse. Her first book, Understanding and Treating Military Sexual Trauma, is currently in its second edition, and it's, it's the first social work text on the topic. So welcome and thanks for addressing this important topic that I think is on everyone's minds these days. Um, so the first question I have is just around the term trauma and generational trauma specifically. Is there such a thing as generational trauma and how do you break the cycle? Yeah, so we've known for decades really that trauma is inherited in the family. It's inherited in two ways. One is how you parent when you have a stressed out parent, for instance, um, a caregiver who's experienced some significant trauma before the child was born, and during those first early years of parenting might dissociate during parenting moments, during high stress moments. We all know that parenting can be quite stressful. You have a child that doesn't really have a super attuned caregiver for their needs. And that causes stress then in the child themselves. So this is one example of how intergenerational trauma can get passed down. We also know that uh, traumatic conditions and personality such as um, you know, uh, disorders like borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, usually start with stress as a young child in the caregiver relationship. Um, so we know that in one way. And then now that we have more insight into neurobiology interpersonally, we also know um, about such terms such as epigenetics um, and neuroplasticity that further show how our body can adapt to high stress and uh, provide it to our offspring as we uh, grow families. So intergenerational trauma is an important topic. Um, in my work with immigration and human rights abuses, it's certainly an important topic when we talk about the trauma of asylum and refugee status, especially in raising families, um, but also in everyone's day-to-day -day life as well. Interesting. How, how do you think about professionals working in the trauma space, trying to provide trauma-informed care? You know, how do they 
find a way to offer the utmost compassion and the highest level of clinical quality to their patients, but still be able to sort of compartmentalize and manage their own lives. Another topic that has only grown in my career, when I started social work school in 2002, we never talked about things like self-care and vicarious trauma. Um, now it's definitely in every classroom with every helping professional across the nation. Uh, what we know is that our bodies are designed to recognize stress and trauma and respond to them. So if you are a helping professional working with trauma, you need to be aware of trauma in two ways. First, with your client and being attuned with what's going on with the client and how you can address that. And we can talk about that more. But from the personal place of how you manage your own stress responses when you're watching somebody talk about their own lived experience of trauma, or if you're a frontline responder watching trauma in the moment, even though you might not be feeling like your life is threatened as someone tells their narrative of their life being threatened, we have designs in our brain and body vis-a-vis uh, -vis our brainstem and our amygdala that scan our environment and scan other people's faces and stress states. And it will activate us in the same way that uh, if we watch a scary movie or someone, I personally get activated when I watch somebody rock climb, my hands will sweat, my body will respond as if I'm in that stressful experience, even though I'm sitting on a couch watching it on a television, that is my body's design to prepare me for a stressful experience, even though I'm not engaging in it. Therapists do that, you know, four, five, six times a day, depending on how many clients you see in a given day. And if therapists don't understand, number one, that they can have vicarious experiences of stress and trauma, just by being a supportive person in the therapy room and two how to down regulate their own nervous system at the end of their work day you will have therapists who are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder without ever experiencing uh, a personal event themselves and that is just entirely how our body and nervous system is designed that's really interesting and do you see ranges in the way people respond to trauma Yes, absolutely. And that has to do a little bit with what we were talking about earlier, which is number one, how genetics are passed down, how stressful your experience was growing up, um, and just how adaptable you are, how good your self-care and uh, your own, if we call them survival strategies are in your life and everyday stress. So the best example I can give you is um, the Las Vegas shooter at the Mandalay Bay, where there was a mass shooting um, that affected many people where I live in Los Angeles. I provided support in the weeks afterwards. And we would hold groups where we would uh, talk about and help people downregulate their nervous system. And you could see the fight, flight, freeze response in that room in every different human brain. And the uh, survivors of that shooting would often say, I did not respond the way I thought I would. I thought I would be the one that was helping. I was the one that was running. I thought I would be the one that was running. 
uh, I froze and did nothing. I couldn't move. And what I just noticed anecdotally in those conversations with a few dozen survivors was the ones who helped, the ones who mobilized are the ones who were used to high stress environments. It was the ambulance driver, the ER nurse, the army veteran. Those uh, humans had conditioned nervous systems. So in a high stress environment, their brain and body was able to navigate it a bit better than some others who had never experienced any sort of high stress in their life and their body just froze. Interesting. It's incredibly powerful that you were able to be of assistance to those folks in that type of crisis situation. So for me, it brings up the question of, you know, in many ways, we hear about trauma in the mainstream media now from what we see on TV, racial injustice, violence in schools. You mentioned the Mandalay Bay shooting, um, you know, all of the kind of exposure that we have on a daily basis for to very traumatizing events you know are there different levels of trauma you know someone experiencing that firsthand versus vicariously experiencing it through it, uh, the media um somebody who has an incident of bullying at school versus someone who's coming from a war-torn country you know how do we think about the term trauma as a general word i just feel like it's used in so many different contexts it's hard to establish um and I, I often will hear families saying, well, that really wasn't traumatic and sort of um, downplaying the impact that a particular incident may have had on a family member. So I'm curious how you think about that. When I think about trauma, I th think about stress, which is what trauma really is. It's a chronic stress state. We also talk about trauma in terms of dosing, how much for how long, right? Stress is a really important thing that we all have to experience. You know, I'm raising a preteen. I want to protect every bit of her social stress and school-related stress, but she's not going to learn to cope and navigate the world without having some stress and figuring that out. So dosing stress is okay. Um, having experiences of what we would call trauma, where we experience so much stress, it activates that flight, fight, freeze response in us um, is okay too. As long as we can find a way to down-regulate back to homeostasis where we started. So an example of that might be being rear-ended in a car accident. That's a really scary moment when you're watching another car not stop and hit you from behind. And people experience that sort of what we would call trauma because in the moment you weren't sure what was going to happen to you. Um, you it did often feel like you could have died or been seriously injured in, a, in that kind of automobile accident. Your body takes some time, even though your brain knows, oh, nothing happened, I'm okay. My car has you know, a bump on it. Your body's gonna take time. It has its own brain, its own system of recalibration. When we start looking at um, developmental trauma, when parents say, oh, you know, that wasn't that traumatic, we can't actually say that for another human because we don't have their genetics, their nervous system, uh, their prior adaptive strategies and stress responses. So what some people appraise as really stressful, like being rejected from a peer group, um, not being invited to 
some important event that all their friends were invited to as young adults, um, if parents discount those moments in their kids' lives and don't help them understand it and navigate through that, what I would say might be more healthy stress, the child can then encode that as a rejection stress, as a betrayal trauma um, that then can build up and be unresolved as they move into adulthood. So I think when I train new clinicians and when I try to help clients understand their own experience with trauma, I always question them when they say, oh, it wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we try to just help people be in their body in the moment and validate the experiences as they come through. Um, with, you know, and that's sort of the beauty of the study of resilience, right? We know um, through stress and trauma, resilience is possible that makes people feel more in control, more integrated and, and um, safer as they experience more stress moving forward, but it takes time. And so being a witness to that and being a parent through that too, can be hard to navigate, especially when your own nervous system doesn't appraise it as as stressful as the person in front of you does. But we still have to validate it and help people navigate it. So going further on this thread, how yeah. if we think about parents who suspect that their child, maybe the child hasn't come forward and said, I experienced this trauma, but they suspect something has impacted their child negatively. You know, are there signs? Where does somebody carry trauma in their body? And then what are the things that family members can do or parents can do specifically to give a child the best chance at being able to respond with a more resilient attitude? Yeah. So it's hard with parenting and children. Um, I think it's important to know that most kids, if not all kids, really want their caregivers to trust them, not doubt them, believe them, um, and support them. And so when I talk to young adults who have discounted something that's happened to them, it's often paired with, I didn't want to be embarrassed, I knew better, I shouldn't have done this, I didn't want to be shamed or told that, um, you know, I shouldn't have gone there. And so people will often judge themselves, which is a key component to the cognitive disruptions that happened in PTSD. Um, they create a cognitive narrative about how it's their fault and uh, will withhold information based on that cognitive narrative. So in crisis intervention, I worked in a, a sexual assault forensic clinic for 18 years where we were seeing survivors of sexual violence in the immediate aftermath as we do the rape kit and um, if they choose to report to law enforcement. The most important thing you can do in those immediate hours after a trauma is help them change the narrative from I shouldn't have, I regret that, to uh, I did not deserve this, right? No matter uh, what, what narrative happens in violent situations, it's never the victim's fault, right? The perpetrator should not have acted in that way. So trying to realign that. Um, in our bodies, however, when we discount trauma, we don't acknowledge it. I saw this a lot with sexual violence in college students this sort of belief of 
life is pretty good. If I tell my parents that I was sexually violated, they're going to make me come home from school. I'm liking it here. This really bad thing happened. I'm just going to suck it up and move on. That's actually a term I see a lot of military sexual trauma, suck it up and move on. Um, and that's something that a lot of survivors choose to do under the circumstances. And what we see is eventually that stress will catch up to them. So how do we see it when someone's not acknowledging it? We're noticing it in their sleep. They're not sleeping well. They're having nightmares and those re-experiencing symptoms. They might react really strongly to a movie. So going back to that other conversation where we say, gosh, why are you reacting that way? Well, there's usually some historical moment for that individual. So I might be judging somebody for having a really strong reaction to a movie without having all the information that that scene in that movie was triggering from a prior event in their life, right? Um, and so the sleeping disturbances, eating disturbances, uh, you start to have difficulty with concentrating, with just completing things, having energy. Sometimes we see real personality and mood shifts. And once somebody decides to uh, talk and process and move through the trauma, you will see those symptoms subside. But with parents especially, if you notice a huge shift in your child's behaviors, moods, sleep and wake cycles, we want you to check in with them and see what could have happened because that's usually a sign of really severe stress. Absolutely. Well, what we see with a lot of our clients and their families is, you know, there's a certain level of guilt that comes or certain level of presumed deflection that should be able to be applied in situations of trauma, meaning if you come from a family with lots of resources, you can afford to get good help. You're, the rest of your life is presumably great. Um, so it's almost like the, this form of trauma, whether it's a bullying, a sexual assault incident, um, you know, there's numerous types of trauma that our clients have experienced, but there's almost a sense of, gosh, you know, thank goodness, you know, I should be grateful that I can afford to go to the right therapist to address this. You know, how do you see that intersection between people of means and various traumatic responses, both for the family members and the individual who's had the incident? Yeah, I think having means is an interesting intersection in trauma, but I wouldn't say that trauma, the, the etiology, the incident of trauma is different because of our nervous systems and our biology. But to your point, what is available and how we access it uh, is important. The interesting thing about high affluent families that I've noticed in my work is that uh, love and money sometimes can get confused. And when a child has experienced maybe emotional absence from caretakers, but have been given lots of financial access, uh, when they start to want to reject uh, the care or hurt the caregiver, they will start rejecting those opportunities for financial uh, support because they've seen that as love, right? Mm. You know, I think navigating that is important. I also, you know, as a social worker want to say, we know that um, trauma is not dosed differently by socioeconomic uh thresholds right but often 
in lower income communities where they live close together and early childhood abuse, for example, can be heard by neighbors and reported, we see higher incidences of uh, child abuse reports. But those same incidences happen in higher affluent families, but it's not reported because the house is a mile away from the other one, right? So there is still lots of dosing of various kinds of stress that we would see in any um, strata of socioeconomic attainment, but sometimes there's more hidden things in those affluent families who have had the opportunity to not be around and not be seen as those moments of stress happen. But anyway, I'm diverting from the major question you had, which is how can they access resources? The other thing that's important is trauma happens in the context of the relationship and heals in the context of a relationship. So I think therapy is one relationship that can really be meaningful, but it's not usually finding the most expensive therapist available. It's finding the most accessible and attuned therapist for that person seeking services. We have lots of different therapies and lots of different interventions and research study after research study shows the number one thing that matters is the relationship with your therapist. It's not the modality. So finding a good healing, often long-term therapeutic relationship is really key to healing, but it's not the only way. Uh, when you have families who maybe have been more distant, haven't been there for their loved one and a really stressful thing happens, you can help that loved one feel safe and secure when you come back together and spend time with them and help them recalibrate their nervous system in the loving family relationship. And that's something I see in all demographics is Sometimes trauma brings families further apart, not together. So the therapeutic relationship is key, but helping the families come together and create safety and trust again with each other, creating a healing environment with each other is also really important because like it or not, those are the people that you're kin to for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really wanna create a safe family environment as well. Gosh, what you've said clearly as I was vigorously nodding my head really resonates with our with our client experience. And I have one follow-up question that touches on an issue that you mentioned before around sexual trauma. We're living in the Me Too era. We're hearing all these stories of high-profile people who are coming um, forward, or not necessarily people coming forward, but victims are coming forward to say that they were um, sexually traumatized by these individuals. How do we think about the long or the long-term impact on those individuals who were victims of sexual assault by somebody who was in a position of power? Well, we know that sexual trauma is often an act of power and control, right? Um, it can be through forms of things like sexual harassment, where there's no actual touching, but a fear of what could be all the way to um, actual rape and sexual violence. So having someone with that in their nervous system that is in the media watching how they 
are reported about um, can be traumatic. So one of the things that I always talk to survivors about is how they consume media and how they engage in the media. So um, during the Me Too era, we had a huge spike in uh, hotline calls at the sexual trauma hotlines because of how much triggering was happening, right? By listening to these news reports. So working with media personalities um, in writers' rooms specifically, that's something I do. I consult with television shows on how they represent sexual violence in the writing, um, not just making it more um, true to life, but also less triggering. We don't, there's, there's a term coming out of the Me Too era called trauma porn. We don't need trauma porn, right? We can get the story across without the visual uh, details um, and dramatics around it. So there's that piece in media is how we report it and what we focus on. Um, and then there's the survivor's use of it. So I have some published research studies around how survivors are talked about in media. So one study I published was just looking at uh, newspaper reports over a four month period with the words rape and sexual violence in the title. And we just looked at the comments of the newspapers to see uh, if you were a survivor and you saw this and you went into the comments to see what people were saying, uh, how did it feel? And the perpetrator support and victim blame was pretty high. Um, so it's not a, the comment threads are not a great place to be if you're a survivor of sexual violence. Um, but on the flip side, I did another study of survivors who reported their sexual assault for the first time online, wondering what that experience was like. We interviewed 20 people, only one of them said they wouldn't do it again. Out of those 19 that did appreciate the support, they found uh, chat rooms, they found uh, discussion boards that were safe and that were filled with survivors so that when they tested the waters, which is essentially what all of them were doing, they hadn't come out in their day-to-day face-to-face life yet, that they were survivors, but tested it in this anonymous uh, discussion board. When they saw other survivors support them, candidly share their own stories and encourage them, that then helped them seek the support they needed in their day-to-day -day life. So it's multi-layered and multifaceted, but I think for any survivor uh, of violence, it's always about how they're consuming and how they're using media. That's great. Well, I wanna end on a hopeful question, which is what excites you about the field of trauma treatment? Are there advances or is it, you know, increasing awareness of how important it is to get help if you've experienced a traumatic incident. I think what, what do you get most excited about when you think about where we're going? I really, uh, the last 10 years of my life have been spent really immersed in interpersonal neurobiology. I am uh, constantly amazed at our brain and body's ability to heal itself. Uh, we know that even without therapy, after a sexual assault, if you look at, if you study survivors who never sought therapy over a 12 month period, more than 60% of their body and brain will be healed and no longer meet criteria for those diagnosable stress responses at the end of 12 months. Our body is an amazing healer. And as a therapist, if I can help 
understand your body and help enhance the healing that's happening in your body, I want to be able to do that. And we have some super exciting, innovative things that are coming out of the world of interpersonal neurobiology that's giving therapists tools and how to do that. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us today for another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. We thank all of our listeners and our viewers. And if you are so inclined, please go on your podcast platform of choice and give us a positive review. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.